Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends. Today we have Dangerous Wisdom from a very delightful direction from sleep and dreams. Sleep and dreams are surprisingly dangerous to the structures of power around us, the pattern of insanity that kind of has us in our... Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Dangerous Wisdom from a delightful direction today, my friends, because we're going to talk about sleep and dreams. They are surprisingly threatening to the pattern of insanity that has us all in its grips. And I'm really excited about today's discussion with uh, a person who's become a a good spiritual friend of mine. I'm going to read his bio for you. Give me just a moment here. Reuben Nyman, Ph.D., is a psychologist, author, fellow in the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Arizona's Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine, where he has taught seminars on sleep and dreams to physicians for 25 years. Rubin pioneered the development of integrative approaches to sleep and dreams, integrating scientific with depth psychological, transpersonal, and spiritual perspectives. He has taught and consulted about sleep and dream matters in a dozen countries around the globe. Over the years, his work has included training doctoral psychology students, dream work with hospice patients and survivors, and establishing and directing sleep and dream health programs for Canyon Ranch and Miraval Resorts. Rubin has also served as a creativity consultant for the entertainment industry, which included travel with a world-renowned rock band for two years. You can't have sex, drugs, and rock and roll without a good night's sleep. Rubin is the author of numerous consumer and professional works on sleep and dreams, including Healing Night, The Science and Spirit of Sleeping, Dreaming, and Awakening. Hush! A Book of Bedtime Contemplations. Healthy Sleep, an audio program co-authored with Andrew Weil. More recently, he published a seminal paper in the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences entitled 
dreamless, the silent epidemic of REM sleep loss, as well as Oxford University Press medical text chapters entitled Dream Medicine and the Future of Sleep Medicine. I recommend reading, if nothing else, uh, the piece on the silent epidemic of REM sleep loss. It's easy to get online. And uh, Ruben also has a couple pieces in Eon that he's written. I'll put links for those in the show notes. And I'm here with a prefatory comment, a little bit of a foreword to our dialogue, because during our dialogue, I think Hermes visited us. It's very rare for the internet to become unstable, and it it wasn't at this end. It was seemed to be on Ruben's end, and it happened multiple times. I think it was three times in total that the internet just went out. And we open our discussion with a nod to the Greco-Roman heritage, the mythological heritage that the dominant culture kind of shares. And we talk a little bit about the figures of sleep and night, those great mythopoetic figures. And I started to think about the way the internet was going out, and I started to wonder, because Mercury, Hermes, Hermes is retrograde at the time that we were having the dialogue, and at this time when I'm offering this foreword, this this little bit of a preface to our dialogue. And in our contemporary culture, that can seem a little bit uh, goofy to talk about. And if we lived in a Newtonian universe with an image of causality that were just rooted in billiard balls banging together, then yes, astrological suggestions are a little bit weird, maybe even nonsensical. Although Newton was very much the mystic, as probably a lot of people have heard. But if we live in an interwoven cosmos, not a Newtonian universe, not a big machine, but in an interwoven cosmos, a non-local cosmos, then there might be more to astrological suggestions than we might think. Now, alternatively, we can look at them psychologically. And when we do that, Jung was very good about saying, when people hear that something is psychological, they feel at first that it minimizes it. Oh, it's nothing but, you know, psychological. And he said, you know, that's the attitude of a fish who thinks they have this, the ocean in their pocket. But the fish is in the ocean, not the other way around. Our life is in the psyche, not the other way around. So when we say that something is psychological, that Hermes has a psychological significance, and Hermes retrograde or Mercury retrograde has a psychological significance, it means that we're walking around in the meaning of that. And we might want to reflect. And so I reflected a little bit, and I just wanted to start off honoring Hermes. And I want to honor first, as part of that, and just so I don't forget, I want, I want to give a, a, a deep bow to my guest, Ruben, who's going to be here soon, and to another guest, Leslie Ellis, in a related dialogue that was about dreams and interpreting dreams. And this one is a little bit more about sleep, but dream is present here. And sleep is, of course, present in the dialogue with Leslie. And I want to encourage you to check in on both of those. I think you'll enjoy them a lot. And both of these uh, practitioners have produced good works to read about sleep and dreams. And I recommend reading both of them as much as you can. So, 
But now, to really begin, I want to give praise to Hermes and just bring him to mind for a moment. What is it that he signifies in our soul? Hermes, we should remember, is a magician. And he's a friend to human beings and a friend to the gods. He's a little bit different than the other gods in that he doesn't get into violent rivalries with the other gods. And Hermes was born in a dark cave like his father was. Zeus was born in a dark cave, and Hermes starts out in this dark cave and somehow wants to get to the light. He wants to get to Olympus. And it's not sure if it will happen. You know, there's no certainty there. For one thing, Hermes is the son of Zeus, but not every son of Zeus gets to be a god. And even if you have some special status, you don't necessarily get to be one of the twelve. That's a special place. Zeus had lots of children. Not all of them had any real divinity to them. They might have very special powers or or uh, a very special place, but they wouldn't necessarily be one of the twelve. And so there are only eleven, and Hermes is going to complete them and make them twelve, but only if he can get there. And he's starting out in this deep, dark cave, and his mother is Maya. And Hermes is retrograde this year in April and May. May is Maya's month, the mother of Hermes. And she is a titan, technically. So Hermes has this aspect of the titanic, the the kind of, um, you could say, instinct, and the divine, right? Heaven and earth, are, are there in Hermes as a figure. And it's important, I'm mentioning this, because Hermes, if we read the, uh, the literature about Hermes, especially if we read the Homeric hymn, Hermes is a guide of dreams. He's a guide of souls and a guide of dreams. Now, when he's born in this cave, he decides to go outside And the first thing he does is he invents the lyre, the musical instrument, the lyre. And then, under the cover of night, now he was conceived at night, and so we're going to nod in the dialogue, Rupert and I are going to nod to night, Nix, and she then helps Zeus to conceive Hermes because Hera is asleep at night, and under the cover of night and sleep, Zeus goes and he gets together with Maya, this nymph, and he produces Hermes. And so Hermes is a child of the night in in an important sense. And after he invents the lyre, he sees a a tortoise, and he decides, wow, this is going to make a perfect musical instrument. So he makes this instrument, and then at night he goes out to steal the cattle of Apollo. So once again, under the cover of night, and he's revealing himself to be a trickster. Now, when Apollo discovers this, and he discovers that he's able to, to read omens, that's part of his gift as, as the god of prophecy. So it is a bird in flight that tells him where he can find his cattle, and he knows what has happened. So then he goes into the cave, and he's looking for Hermes. And Hermes is able to pass in and out of the cave, even though it's sealed. So he's also revealing himself to be the god of liminal space, moving across what, what ordinarily might be blocked to others, he can cross. And that's important for his role as a guide of souls, that he can move through all the dimensions. We're kind of 
putting the pieces together randomly here rather than tell the whole story. We, we should probably have a whole contemplation on Hermes. But I just want to introduce a few of these elements because I think he was asking for attention. And so I hope Reuben will, <laughs> will uh, appreciate this. So Apollo comes and he threatens to throw Hermes into Tartarus, into the blackness. So Hermes is trying to get out of this dark cave, and he even tells his mother as much. He says, look, you know, we, we don't want to hang around here. It's better if we go up to Olympus, and we can be in the light of the divine. And she's chosen, for some reason, to be in this dark cave. And he's saying, let's get out of here, Mom. And so, But now, Apollo's saying, kid, I'm going to throw you into darkness forever. You'll never get out. Now, Hermes knows that he's going to get out of this because he's a trickster. He's so clever. And he's a bit of a magician, so he's manipulative. And his thievery of these cattle, we should note, is not ordinary thievery. It's not brute force, and he's not taking the cattle for some personal gain. It's a very interesting kind of thievery. Because Apollo is going to come out ahead by his own view. And Hermes, when he steals the cattle, he doesn't eat them, even though he's really hungry for meat. That's why he goes after the cattle. But he instead sacrifices the meat to the gods, including himself. And that's what the gods live on, this sacrifice. They don't eat the meat, but they take the sort of divine aspect. So again, we see the heaven and earth, right? The meat is really earthly, and he's kind of letting himself transcend his merely titanic aspect. And he's inventing a new kind of theft where everyone seems to benefit the one who, who feels that they've been robbed actually comes out ahead. And how that happens is that now Hermes says, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not guilty. So he flat out lies to Apollo. And he uses a wonderful line. He says, look, man, I was born yesterday, because literally he was. It's the first day he was born. He still looks like a baby, but he can walk around. He's amazingly strong, and he's very clever. And so he, he actually uses that line. I was just born yesterday. You really think I could steal your cattle? And he does it in an ingenious way. We're not going to go into all the details. So he says, I insist that we let Father Zeus decide this. And it seems that Apollo has to agree. It's almost like when a, when a pirate calls for a parlay. You have to say, all right, they called for a parlay. Let's hear what they have to say. So Apollo takes him up to Olympus, which is what he wanted. And now Zeus says, okay, you two. And really, Zeus is finding this humorous. He laughs about it. He, he can't believe how clever this kid is and how, how bold to lie to, to Zeus when Zeus knows what happened. And so he says, well, you two get your hearts into sim- sympathy or a symphony of hearts, and you find those cattle. So off they go, and Hermes has hidden the lyre, the musical instrument, this whole time he's had it. And when Apollo arrived, just one other nod to sleep, Hermes, he says, look, I don't want cattle, I want sleep. And he's all cuddled up in his in his little cradle. And he says, that's what all I want is sleep. I don't want cattle. And he's hidden the lyre in there with him. And then when Apollo takes him, he keeps the lyre hidden. Now, on the way to find the cattle, he takes the lyre out and he starts to play it. And Apollo is enthralled. And he says, look, I think we can work out a deal here. You let me have that, and I'll let you have the cattle. 
And so Hermes agrees, and he not only agrees, and they sort of become friends, but Apollo really gives him more. He says, you know what, you can also have flocks, and he lets him have sheep and cattle and horses. Not really wild horses, not all horses. I don't think so. It's hard to tell because Poseidon is really the god of the horse. And in a way, so is Demeter, a certain way. But somehow or other, Apollo is giving Hermes horses, and I think it means horses who have been domesticated. And he later, of course, gives Hermes his caduceus, his magic wand. Now, what's important about that magic wand and, and is also related to why I think we have to honor Hermes here for a moment or two, is that Hermes is recognized as this guide of dreams. He's seen as a, as a guide of dreams and as a magician and as the inventor of language even. We get the word hermeneutics from his name, which means the art of interpretation. And how could we interpret our dreams without Hermes? It's an interpretive art. And uh, how do we communicate with each other without Hermes? Now, it's tricky because he's not a messenger in an ordinary sense. It's much more important that he's a guide of souls and a being who can cross all the boundaries. He's really, there really aren't other beings who can move all the way from Olympus through the earthly realm down into the deepest depths of Hades which means he goes past where Hypnos lives. He knows how to navigate the whole thing. But what's important, too, is that with that caduceus and with his hermetic powers, it is he who can put beings to sleep. And maybe, maybe he has a power that even Hypnos doesn't quite have. It's not clear, because Hypnos is not one of the twelve. And the twelve dominate over all the others. And not to use aggressive language, but it is to say that somehow they triumphed. And so the Titans have to kind of submit to the Twelve. And we can remember, and all of this is very relevant to the things that Rupert and I are going to talk about, and that's why I'm inviting you to appreciate Hermes and keep some of this in mind as you listen to the rest uh, of of the dialogue. So Hermes is the one who put to sleep Argos, who is variously described, sometimes he's described as a four-eyed monster, that is one eye looking in each direction, and he never sleeps, that later seems to develop into a 100-eyed monster. And either the 100 eyes never sleep, or they sleep alternately, which means that the being never actually gets rest. And it is Hermes who puts him to sleep, and then dispels him, dispatches him. And So this seems so resonant with our time when we're having the hundred eyes are now a hundred screens and a hundred camera lenses. I'm looking at you, there's an eye that I have to look through and you're seeing me through a screen. And so Argos is here as a million billion eyed monster, never sleeping. When one screen goes quiet, another one is lighting back up. And it's part of why we're losing sleep. And so Hermes has the capacity to come and help us actually sleep again. He can put us to sleep. And he, of course, uses this power also in the Iliad, it seems, because whenever 
uh, he has to get when Priam is in the the enemy camp, the the Trojan king is in the the camp of the Danaeans. He has to get back out with the body of his son, and it seems that Hermes has, Hermes has put everybody to sleep, and it's clear that he is not affected. Everybody else falls asleep, but he gets Priam up and he guides him out. So he is again a guide, and in the Iliad he's not a messenger. That's Iris, so he's not an ordinary messenger. That, too, is really important in our context because we think we're so hyper-connected that I can send you an email and there you get it. And Hermes is not a messenger in the sense of Zeus hands him a letter and he comes and he delivers it to you. Because he is a guide of souls, I think he gives us a more profound image of communication. That for you and I to communicate we have to ask Hermes to send our souls to a place in common. We have to be with each other. It is not that I send these words over the internet and you hear them and that's Hermes carrying them. No, he's, he's there to say, let me bring the two of you together. When Zeus wants to speak to us, Hermes will bring us into the presence of the divine. When we want to sleep, Hermes will carry us into the presence of hypnos. And so in a way, it's not so much that we have to wait for hypnos to come to us, but that Hermes has to make it okay that we can meet hypnos and we can meet night. He's our guide. So there's a different view of communication there. Just like we don't live in a billiard ball universe, communication is more communion than it is sending something like a message. Rather, we are sent. When communication works well, we are sent someplace new. And so I think that Hermes might feel very much uh, ignored and very much, much misunderstood that we think we can communicate so fast, but he's the god of speed. Likewise, he's not merely the god of, of travelers as we have conceived of travel. Because When we conceive of travel, we think we can travel so fast because the airplane shuttles our body from one place to another. But Hermes, as a guide of souls, is a guide of a journey. And, of course, the most important journey we can make is the inward journey, into the land of sleep and dream, into the mystery itself. And this shuttling of bodies around, I think Hermes would look down upon and say, you are misunderstanding. The soul calls to us and says, take the inward journey. We hop on a plane to Bora Bora to have a yoga retreat and think we're really doing something. But we're ignoring what Hermes really is as a guide of journeyers, real journeyers. And he may even think that, look, human bodies are not really meant to move that fast. Not if they want spiritual insight, not if they want to go home the way that Odysseus does. And of course, he functions as a guide for Odysseus too. So this magician, this journeyer, this guide of souls, I think deserves as much honor as Hypnos and Nyx, sleep and night, and Morpheus dreams. Because somehow or other, it's Hermes who is acknowledged as this ruler of dreams. Now, I... I also want to mention one other place where I think he is marginalized and and in a funny way. In one of his pieces, uh, written pieces, Reuben writes about how the two 
most heavily traded commodities, and you may have heard this in other places, it's a commonly enough uh, remarked on fact, it's oil and coffee. And he, he makes a beautiful connection to our sort of addiction to energy. It's that Argos energy. We have to be awake, so we have to pull in oil and coffee to keep us going. And, of course, we use cigarettes too. And then at the end of the day, we're so wound up. Like Argos, we can't sleep. And so then we have to use other things to get us to sleep, and those will interfere with dream. So all of these things, caffeine interferes with dream, and uh, then the alcohol we might drink or the Ambien we might take, that interferes with dreams. And so Ruben is trying to draw our attention to this, and I really think that's beautiful. But what is even more heavily traded than coffee? In fact, what is it if you took uh, streaming services and book sales and concert ticket sales and you added them all up together? What is it that they still would be exceeded by? Lottery tickets. Lottery ticket sales outpace the sale of coffee or cigarettes, and they outpace the combined sales of books. That's Hermes Realm. Streaming services, that's media. In a way, it's his hermetic realm. And, of course, music, concerts, because he's there. Apollo has his place in music, too, but Hermes is the inventor of the lyre. And so, why do I mention lotteries? Because there, the, the word for a windfall... See, Hermes is a god of luck, and in Greek, hermion means a windfall. So a lottery win would be a hermion. Any great find, that principle of finding, that almost feels like a theft, because you got lucky... And somehow, like if you found a thousand dollars in the middle of the street somehow, or you found a, you know, a gold nugget, it would be as if you were taking it from somewhere, from something, right? And the, the spirit of Hermes is like that, that it all belongs to the divine. And whatever we take, we're really only taking from the divine, and we have to offer something in return, or understand the divine may take something from us. Now, with Hermes, the beauty is that if he takes from us, we might still come out ahead. He takes our cattle, we might be upset, but then we get something more magnificent from our own perspective. Maybe it's not a musical instrument for any one of us, maybe it's something else, but still, we we find out that we could come out ahead. But what's interesting is that lottery mania has kind of seized the culture, and that too seems to indicate some encumberment of the hermetic energy. And so for all these reasons and more, I just want to start out with this deep bow of respect and reverence for Hermes and what he represents in the soul that is really lost right now, I think. And we could recover it. But we may need, if we want to recover our sleep and dreams, we may need to think about Hermes as much as Hypnos and Nix. And I then want to say, uh, finally, that if you are struggling at all, with sleep. We mentioned some of the statistics in our dialogue. It's important to say you're not alone, that the place of sleep and dreams is very precarious right now in this culture and very encumbered. We have a lot of, a lot of issues, and it speaks to how rebellious the acts of sleep and dream are. The activity of sleep and dream is like a great rebellion 
in the dominant culture. And how can we make that shift? How can we find that place? Part of it, of course, is I, I don't know if it re- comes up now because I can't remember, but meditation is a big part of this. We certainly do talk about how meditators can have an easier time remembering dreams, entering into lucid dreams, and making the transition because they learn how to let go. But it's also important that dream is a bardo place and that the practice of meditation is the practice of entering bardo with clarity of mind. And so that too, I think, is important to recognize. But this is such a rich discussion, and again, I want to appreciate Ruben and also Leslie, who I think of as uh, as friends, and uh, certainly good spiritual friends. We're siblings in Sophia. And with all of that preface, then, I would like to welcome Ruben Nyman. Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm delighted to be here. Delighted to have you. So, there are some themes in your work, and where can we begin? I like that you touch on the mythical dimension, and of course part of my heritage is the goddess Nyx, night, goddess of night, and hypnos. And you've said that we, we have exiled Nyx, exiled night, and we have a kind of domesticated or in, in, enslaved hypnos in the laboratory. Mm. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it always brings to mind... Uh, the contrast between what's up in the sky in our world today and what hovered across the sky in, in the world of uh, ancient Greece. So Nyx lived back then. Um, she actually lived underground and, and rose up in the evening. Uh, she would drape her cape or wings across the planet. Everything would darken and cool. And yeah, at, at that time, there were gods and goddesses and all kinds of strange creatures seen in the sky. Today, um, we have tens of thousands of, of airplanes floating around at any given moment, really, not to mention satellites and space junk and God knows whatever else is out there. So it's a very different world. Uh, there's a lot of metal floating around up there versus spirit. And uh, I do think Nix is in exile. We've forgotten about her. I think as close as we come scientifically to understanding Nix or to understanding Nix from a scientific perspective uh, is in the form of the molecule melatonin. When you look closely at the characteristics of Nix, they actually match what we today understand as melatonin. That's fascinating. I mean, it's, uh, of course, you also have some appreciation for the psychodynamic view of this, that there, that sees it as an autonomous power of the psyche that transcends the ego uh, to which we we must have a, an attitude of humility. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I think the frame through which most of us have been taught to look at the world and look at life and ourselves it is it's a it's a necessary perspective, but it's extremely limited. Uh, I I think it's it's rooted primarily in philosophical materialism. So much of what life is about today. Um, even though most of us don't feel it acutely, so much of what life is about is still survival. Uh, we're, we're trying to manage and survive this this physical world. You know, this world where everything arises and falls, things are born and they die, they come and they go. Um, it is so interesting today that, you know, for some time now in, in Silicon Valley and other places around the globe, there's a lot of energy, money, research, focus on um 
you know, on longevity and the possibility of living forever. I'm always reminded of a line from a band song where they say, I'd rather die happy than not die at all. For a man is a fool who will not heed the call. Be that as it may, um, there's some really interesting efforts underway. And I, and I, I, I totally open to and support the ideas of understanding human health. But I think the notion that, that we're trying to live forever presumes that the material world is all there is. Mm. Yeah, there's something really powerful there because we don't know what's on the other side of that journey. And refusing the journey, could we could think of if we were on the other side of it, if we thought, oh my goodness, I almost refused this journey and it was the most important one I had to make it. Mm-hmm. And so we don't, this not knowing is important. So, but there's something, I mean, there are two things you're touching on, well, many things. One that we'll, I'm sure we'll get to is this medicalization of everything, including just our, even our life is just a medical problem. It's not a spiritual question. But then there's still this question of what happens whenever we force a god into the shadow. Jung talked about uh, what happened in Germany. His interpretation was that Wotan had gotten pushed into the shadow, and it's like a dried-up riverbed is the metaphor he used. And then eventually the water's going to come flooding back in, and it could mm-hmm. be dangerous. And there's a way in which we are we, – that's what we've done to Nix and Hypnos is we've forced them there. We're almost embarrassed. You talk about how sometimes when you give talks, people are shy about coming up to you and saying, I actually love sleep because we're not allowed to admit that we don't – you know, that we – wait, you sleep more than five hours, you know. It's like uh, you're highly privileged to be able to do that. Um, what, what, to what extent do you think we that riverbed can get – Refilled, and what do we need to do in order to do it without flooding it? Or what? What? What is going? Or if we look at it that way, as okay, we've repressed something. What? What are some of the symptoms of it, and what are some of the dangers if we don't reapproach it in a healthy way? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, you know, there, there, there's a lot of shadowy elements to sleep today. I, I think the first part. Um, is is that we can't really know K-N-O-W. We, we can't really have knowledge about sleep and dreams from a waking perspective. And, and that's what we try to do. So, you know, I've written about this notion of wake centrism, the idea that we we believe that this consciousness that we're sharing right now, that we're awake, we believe this is it. This is a premium, that these, the gold standard for being conscious Um and, and the presumption, too, is that we can really come to understand, to know, we can have knowledge about everything um, from this perspective. And, and it, it's interesting, uh, this comes up all the time in my clinical work with patients who have insomnia. Um, they, the, routine, the routine notion is, uh, in fact, I heard this from a patient, that I can't sleep. I can't sleep. And, you know, at some level, it breaks your heart when somebody has been struggling with sleep uh, intensely for a long time. But the truth is that that statement makes no sense because the presumption is that the part of me that I call I, the waking self, should be able to sleep. And it can't. And that's where people get stuck. They keep trying to leverage waking to get to sleep. It's a classic uh, Three Stooges clip that I love. Uh, Mo, Larry, and Curly are in bed together in different places. The, the clip is replayed here and there in different episodes. But uh, Curly is fidgeting, and, and Mo, of course, slaps him and says, you know, go to sleep. He turns around and looks at Larry, 
Larry's sleeping, he's snoring, and he shakes him on the shoulder, and he says to Larry, hey, wake up and go to sleep. And Larry goes, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's actually the subtext of a lot of cognitive process. When people start to awaken at night, they really believe that they need to fully wake up in order to get back to sleep. We try to leverage waking to get to sleep. It's a huge mistake. Um, The waking part of us, the waking part of me, the part of us that we call I, is incapable of sleep. From the perspective of the waking self, sleep is an accident. And you can't make an accident happen. Then it's not an accident. So any effort, we call it sleep effort, to try to get to sleep, engages waking more and more deeply. And people get stuck in that. So the belief that it's, I guess it's based on the belief that waking is all there is. You know, we're in this wake tricks and we think it's the whole universe. Um, How do we descend or how do we transcend out of that? I think part of it requires realizing that knowledge can only take us so far. I'm not in any way opposed to knowing things and learning things, continuing to push the envelope. But I think I I think we miss wisdom. And I think wisdom is a whole different order of experience than knowledge. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, speaking to the choir here, of course, because uh, as a philosopher, I would agree. I would also even say that we have a, a partly an epistemological crisis that sleep is revealing that because there are plenty of traditions who would say that what we are calling knowledge is clearly not, shouldn't be the gold standard, that there, there's some other processes that we need to integrate because science goes all together with the degradation of ecologies. It's not like the scientists have been innocent. We couldn't have degraded the world without science. It's totally interwoven. And it's interesting, as if I keep thinking that, hey, the problem isn't wokeism, it's wakeism. But it's interesting, the funny thing, you, you sometimes say, we don't get sleep because we don't get sleep, we don't understand sleep. And it's interesting how what plays into that for me, that notion and what you just said, is that the wisdom traditions would say, you know, it's really funny. You think the reason you don't get sleep is because your version of waking is sleepwalking. So you're not getting sleep because you're already asleep in your life. And that mind that you're using, so they would, this wisdom traditions would not only say that we're trying to leverage that wakeism to get to sleep, which doesn't make sense, but they would also say you're also in general leveraging ignorance and you're never going to get anything but more ignorance from that. Right, right, right. Yeah. I think I lost you for just a second. Or is it me or is it you? Oh, you're back. You froze for back? a moment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, now you're is frozen again. There it is. Okay, you're back again. I don't know what the freezing is. Is that you or me? Let me turn off my... Uh... Hello, hello. There you are. Now you're back. We're back. Okay. Okay. Try it again. I mean, this idea that that sleep is a default consciousness is present in a number of Eastern traditions, in Tibetan Buddhism, and certain aspects of Hinduism. And um, the the notion there is interesting. It's that that um, sleep is really the foundation of consciousness. 
it's this um, this spaciousness, if you will, much like space in the world um, that's always present. And so we never have to go there. It's already there. We simply need to um, let go of waking, which obscures it. Again, I'm not arguing against waking. I kind of like it. Uh, not 24-7, but it has its place. So um, to consider the possibility that we are, all of us, even right now, as you and I talk, as people listen to this, um, we're already asleep. Sleep resides inside of us. And any effort we make to get to sleep, once again, engages waking and tethers us to, to wake centrism or, or the wake tricks, the effort to try to get to sleep. Um, the effort is about letting go of waking. And that's an act of faith that I already have when I need, that the sleep is inside of me. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of thinking about it, you know, that there's a primordial awareness that's there. And that would be like not just lucid dreaming, but lucid sleeping, which is pretty rare for most people to experience, to that there could be a lucidity in the depth of dreamless sleep. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Let me just say, I actually think it's pretty common that people experience lucid sleep. Uh, around around the edges, around lighter stages, certainly stage one sleep, we have we're lucid. But even in, in, in aspects of stage two sleep, many many people. It, well, here's a classic picture: um, you got a college kid. Uh, it's Sunday morning. Mom and dad come in. It's eleven o'clock. They're trying to wake him up. You know he's been out, out all night, and he says, "Quote: Leave me alone. I'm sleeping." He is. Even as he's saying that, there's a part of him that's asleep, and he knows that he's asleep. Mm -hmm. Many people experience this when they're napping. It, it's not a very deep sleep, but they're in stage two, and they are sleeping, and they know they're sleeping. So I think that's a really critical doorway. Um, the, the other interesting doorway, which, which we disparage, is uh, the notion of sleepiness. So sleepiness, um, I mean... It creates a lot of battles in life when people get sleepy during the day, right? Okay, so we can just change directions a little bit, and let me let me ask about one of the things that I think seems so challenging, and this is what I was trying to touch on in the intro, this idea that sleep is such a threat to the pattern of insanity, is that really, when you look at all the elements of restoring sleep, restoring hypnos, getting that riverbed flowing again. And it's interesting that it's a riverbed and he, there's a river associated with him. But um, it really challenges the whole structure of our society. You mentioned en energy before, and you wrote, have written about how we're kind of addicted to energy and addicted to this pulse. And so it's not just that we've domesticated hypnos, but th through our own self-domestication, we're on a leash too. We, we have to keep sleep on a leash. We time it. And there's this huge threat that we might actually start to dream again because we might need to dream our way out of this. We can't use habitual thought or we can't leverage ignorance or leverage the ordinary waking mind to get ourselves out of this big catastrophe. Um, can you talk about some of, and, and just for people out there to, so that you know you're not alone, you wrote, and I'll link to a couple of pieces that you wrote in Eon, but uh, one of them you talked about how there's been a, uh, that 30% of adults experience uh, some symptoms of insomnia, um, that in the first decade of the 21st century, if I remember correctly, we had a, about a 266% jump in sleep disorder diagnoses, unsurprisingly, an even bigger jump, about 293%, in prescriptions. 
so so we're 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 clearly struggling here we're clearly dealing with the fact that the psyche is wanting to compensate for pushing hypnos and nix away um but can you talk about really if we're honest the things that we have to do to try to recover a healthy sleep in the midst of this crazy culture yeah what what a big question <laughs> what a good question i i think part of the challenge um, and, and by the way, the answer to this question is the answer to a larger question about uh, how do we contribute to healing, you know, what the crazy stuff and culture in the world today. Um, and I think we, we come to recognize that um, sleep appears to be a, a very private individual function. I go to bed, I go to my bed, I close my eyes, I go into my sleep world. And I, I think from the perspective of waking, that's exactly how it looks. From the perspective of sleep, it doesn't. Um, it, it's a social process. So so sleeping and, and dreaming both require a fundamental willingness to allow consciousness to expand. Uh, so if we're wake-centric, we're living in this bubble of consciousness, um, and it's it's highly impermeable for many people, or they don't recognize the permeability. I always think about the the film, The Truman Show. Did, have you seen that? Mm-hmm. Where he- okay, so we're having some Hermes retrograde mer- or Mercury retrograde moments here with tech. And we're back. We were just talking about this big question, the big threat that sleep might present to the structures of power that kind of have us in their grips. You were going to talk about the Truman Show, but you can talk about anything in response to that yeah, giant question. Yeah, I mentioned that scene in the Truman Show where he finally gets that he's living in this bubble and he starts to sail away on on this boat and then the boat tears through the horizon, which turns out to be canvas. I, I think that represents a kind of, a fundamental kind of courage and willingness to consider that there's more out there. We we step into it, and we're not quite sure what the ground will look like, where we'll end up. But I I think the willing that that's a willingness to 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 move to expand consciousness, to move from the kind of consciousness that we so value in our world, which is focused on the individual and I, me, mine, um, to to more of an expansive consciousness. I I often talk with patients about um, what I call stub toe consciousness. Um, we've all, I think most of us have stubbed our toe from time to time. And it's a moment where you're walking along, you're moving, you're doing something, you're going somewhere, probably feels important. You know, it all does to the ego. And then suddenly, boom, you stub your toe. Everything stops and you, you have like a split second or two before the pain is going to travel from the tip of your toe up your spine to your brain. Most people at that point stop and they, they hurl expletives at their toe like, but, but what's interesting about that is in, in that moment, consciousness shrinks. Pain does that. It just shrinks consciousness. You know, the, the, the tip of a little needle in your finger, something that tiny will bring your, at least for a split second, will bring your consciousness down that small. And I think it's a natural tendency of consciousness to expand and contract. The contraction keeps us focused. Um, A lot of contraction is essential for surviving in the waking world, in the material world. But um, the problem is I think we stay there. We think that's all there is. And and dreaming and sleep expand consciousness. They they essentially expand consciousness. And, you know, I've been concerned about what I consider to be 
really substantial evidence that suggests that for some decades now, collective consciousness, consciousness for most of us, has gradually been contracting, constricting. Uh, I I actually think, I I mean, we do, we look at smaller and smaller things. More and more people spend more and more time indoors. And even if you're looking at a big screen TV, it's a lot smaller than looking out your window or stepping out into the world. But so many people are are looking at smaller things, you know, they're looking at phones and computers, and and that shrinks. Consciousness is accustomed to just getting shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk down. Um, And and, um, then at that point, when we try to expand consciousness, it can feel uncomfortable. Uh, It's unfamiliar. And and that's how we get to sleep. So um, the dreamlessness, and, and thank you for referring to that piece I wrote, uh, I, I believe we're in an epidemic of dreamlessness. I think most of what we call sleep loss is actually dream loss. It's REM sleep loss or other types of dream, dream loss. And um, failing to recognize that is a huge problem. And it's a problem not just culturally, but in my profession, in, in the field of sleep medicine. Um, I've argued for a long time that we should call it sleep and dream medicine. You know, it's like... If ENT, if your nose and throat was just air and nose, you know, we were leaving out a really big piece. We can't do that. But um, my sense is most of my colleagues, my sleep doctor colleagues, believe that dreams are bullshit. They think they're this sort of epiphenomenon, this this kicking up of dust during mental, during neurological housekeeping. And, and um, I think fewer and fewer people in, in the world, in our world at least, have have any faith that dreaming is meaningless it's, it's the unconscious it's it's not waking consciousness the the main reason people don't sleep is that they have a bad relationship with dreaming mm. and and shakespeare touched on this and when uh, hamlet said to sleep perchance to dream no thank you um and and there's 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 evidence now that a difficulty falling asleep um constellates around the hypnagogic dream when we're first letting go we go into a dreamy state and this kaleidoscopic dreaming waking consciousness is dissolving people react to that and also in the middle of the night when we start more of our REM sleep um, there's there's strong evidence that we might not even begin to experience the dream it's as if we can feel a stampede coming from the horizon it's just a little bit of dust and and we wake up the dream is arriving it's a different order of consciousness uh it's an expanded consciousness and and the the i that i identify with begins to dissolve in dreams i can be me i can be you i can be you know we're not operating in in the, the the somatic world of senses so um yeah, I, I think what sleeping and dreaming call for us to do is to expand consciousness. Mm-hmm. And let me just add, it's not a surprise to me. The timing of this resurgence of interest in psychedelics makes a lot of sense. I think that um, in part, there, there's a really deep thirst for expanding consciousness. And we've forgotten how to trust our own nature to do that, our own sleep and dreams. And so it makes sense that... that uh, we're fascinated with the fact that we can swallow a mushroom or a particular molecule and do that. I'm not opposed to that, but I think psychedelics are not um, the main course. I think they're appetizers that can remind us of what we really need to consume. 
Mm. And they have been for so many people. I mean, one of the things that I think we have to recognize with the dominant culture is that it constrains us to a remarkably narrow range of conscious experiences. You know, mm. you're, you're, you're allowed to drink coffee, you're allowed to smoke a cigarette, you're allowed to get drunk. And But whereas other cultures, a little bit more rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, have invested a great deal of cultural energy mm-hmm. into investigating other possibilities. And it's interesting that they have then found what we consider the central state to be unserviceable for arriving at insights that the culture needs to carry itself forward or that we need in order to liberate ourselves from our own ignorance. Say that in a slightly different way. I, I think I got it, but I'm not sure. So we, this mind that we think is is uh, the one we're going to use to do things with, you know, I'm going to mm-hmm. invent a, a rocket to go to Mars and all of that. Uh, this mm-hmm. very mind that we think is so good, the wisdom traditions have said that mind is unserviceable for quality insight. The very mm-hmm. mind that you're clinging to is unserviceable, and so you need to learn what else your mind can do, and you need to learn how to do it yourself. It's all fine, yes, if you if you want to work with plant teachers, that's great, but you have those capacities, and we need to explore that range. Moreover, mm-hmm. what's interesting then is think of this, this challenge that it presents to the culture and the kind of epistemic, ep- epistemological shift. If you don't have anything riding on what your dream is— that's another reason why it's going to get shoved down, right? I mean, if you live in a culture where your your village are depending on you to dream f- yes. them, them forward, and we're going to sit around and talk about, well, what did you dream? Well, I, this is what we think it means. So there's a, a social aspect, and we need the dream to, to move us forward, whereas that famous passage that Jung talks about his trip to Africa, and he's speaking to a man who was basically a shaman, and he was asking him about dreams, and the man began to weep. He said, I know what you mean. My father used to dream. And Jung said, you don't? He said, no. What's the point? The district commissioner tells us what to do. They tell us what, when to move, what, what to plant, what to, when to harvest. All of it's decided. I've got nothing riding on the dream, so why would I bother with it? And this culture then further constrains that because dream means I'm going to found a corporation and get rich. It doesn't right. mean that something is going to come to me that is a message that maybe my ego doesn't want to hear. And that's even part of the aspect. Well, how do we confront the fear of what might be in that realm and strengthen ourselves to face it? It's interesting with all of the lip service we have in our world about the rights of the individual. And I think they're important. But th- these are, are really rights in the world of waking. We we, we, we want to foster tremendous respect for freedom. You know, I can... I can study what I want. I can marry whom I want or, you know, do what I want. Um, but, but we so discourage reliance on, on ourselves. I, I wanted to share a quote. Maybe you're familiar with uh, uh, one of my colleagues uh, and buddies, Gary Schwartz, and, and a group of really renowned scientists from around the world wrote, wrote a piece um, in Frontiers. And so here's. Hope you just froze again. Hang on. We were doing so well. Recording absolute dominance of materialism in in the academic world. Okay, you're back. (laughs) We just lost you for a second. Okay, go for it. Um, Was I reading the quote? You you were just about to start when you froze, so just go ahead and start reading the quote. So the quote says, The nearly absolute dominance of materialism in the academic world has seriously constricted the sciences and hampered the development of the scientific study of mind and spirituality. 
It has compelled scientists to neglect the subjective dimension of human experience and led to a severely distorted and impoverished understanding of ourselves and our place in nature. So, so that's, you know, about the call to go inward. And, and yeah, so, I mean, many, many of us now have learned to meditate or we're doing yoga nidra. My concern about that is not the, the techniques, but the reason we do the techniques. I think a lot of people do mindfulness to become better waking people. And again, I, I have no doubt that that it has a lot of positive spillover and, and improves the quality of waking life. But it's not simply, these are not sort of spiritual resources that we're going to mine and bring back to make the waking world better. They're, they're, they're doorways, they're bridges, they're roadways to expand consciousness. But there's so little regard for, in fact, I would say that I think there's a lot of fear of the unconscious. We can go back to Freud. Um, you know, many people are familiar with the ego, the id and the superego, but, um, most people don't know that those are those are American terms. So American psychiatry translated Freud, who wrote in German, and uh, the word "id" uh, in, you know refers to this this huge vat of repulsive crap we wanted to do or want to do. But Freud didn't call it the id. He called it in German "das s." Yeah. He called the core of who we are it. <laughs> yeah. You know, that alone just, just captures it, you know, and, and the notion is that we, we need to dominate that, control it and sublimate it, or it's going to do terrible things. Fundamentally saying that we cannot trust ourselves. Yeah. And I do think that's a common belief in the world. People are afraid of themselves, meaning so when they slow down, they start to dream and sleep and they go inward. I think it brings with it. I think that at the gateway, there's a lot of anxiety about that. Yeah, absolutely. Because well, there's a non-duality there because we have to be trusting ourselves and the great mystery at the same time. Because if you draw a line, you say, "Look, I trust myself," but if the dream tells me we have to dismantle capitalism, no, I don't want it. Well, you're just saying then I don't want anything. I don't want anything but what but candy for the ego, something that I can use. As you say, that I'm going to use this instrumentally. Mindfulness without an ecology of wisdom, love, and beauty is not mindfulness according to the wisdom traditions, whatever you want to call it. But you can use those techniques in order to become a better raider of pension funds. You know, if that's Mm -hmm. what you want to do, that's what you'll do with it. But it's not what these traditions mean, and you are then cutting yourself off from who knows what. And it's very similar to uh, the quote you read, that it's still all interrelated, this idea that we might need a paradigm shift in our sciences. And that, see, think I often think of what this would mean for the scientists, because from the standpoint of the wisdom traditions, part of what we're talking about is dreams can only come to a certain kind of dreamer. You have to have made yourself into the kind of person who will take the risk, who will release, and who will face the challenge. When it's mm-hmm. scary, do you decide to lay back down and, I'm going to go right back into that. That scared the heck out of me. Mm-hmm. And so even the scientists then might have to come to that humbling recognition that our own science verifies, but that which Socrates and other teachers were trying to say, that knowledge depends on the knower yeah. because it depends yeah. on the way of knowing. So if you haven't made yourself into that knower, you're not going to know. I appreciate you bringing that up. I, I Pretty much um, on a weekly basis, or sometimes more, excuse me, I'll get an email from someone out there, um, and they will send me uh, in great detail a dream that they had. You know, I mean, sometimes it's pages, and um, they're proud of it. It's like, oh, my God, look what my unconscious did. But the, the fundamental question is, 
what does it mean? You know, as, as if I can look at a dream without knowing anything about the dreamer, right? Uh, about where it comes from, the context in which the dream was born and, and, and thrives. Uh, but that, that's a common notion. So most dream work, I believe, is, is really, um, it's not very useful. The, the most common dream books are dream dictionaries, you know, which, so if you dream about this or that, it means this or that. And those meanings tend to be assigned from the wake-centric world. If you dream about an apple, it's sex. And if you dream about a, a telephone pole, it's phone sex, you know. <laughs> That's good. The, the presumption is that you can understand the dream solely as a reflection of waking life. And there's no doubt that the, that, that lots of waking life gets, you know, technically it's sort of digested in, in, in the dream world. But the dream also, it's not just a mirror, a funhouse mirror that reflects in some distorted way what's going on in waking life, but it's a doorway as well. That's that's the into the looking glass piece. And, and, and people fail to get that, that the dream can take us into a deeper connection with life with the people around us. There's so much beautiful anecdotal evidence about mutual dreaming. I mean, it happens if you pay attention. People are connecting at that level. Um, yeah, so we, we need to open our hearts and, and, and trust that there's more going on than we're comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. Because not only the, the human, but the non-human too. But I appreciate, because I, I mentioned to you whenever I first contacted you that I interviewed Leslie Ellis, and her work, I think what's so beautiful about the way she's working with it is, of course, she is oriented toward more experiential and process. And what, what's a subtle thing that I don't even think she and I talked about, but when you, the way she's working, essentially, if the, if the dream is presenting us with symbols, and if the symbol has two legs, one leg in what's familiar and the other leg in where you have to go, the way she's working with it is allowing you in the process of the dream work to become the person who can understand that insight. So it's like the shift happens in you first, then you understand what the dream was inviting. And there still may be many more steps, but she's using that much more uh, individualized, experiential, uh, where there's a possibility of a shift in thinking about the dream. And that right. that's how yeah. you come to the meaning. Well, and, and the, the meaning is interesting and and I would say the experience is even more important. And so I, I think Jung at some point said that you can never understand uh, an image in a dream outside of the rest of the dream. You can't really understand the dream outside of the dreaming. And and so there, there is always, in, in my experience, an element of mystery that remains. And and I think I, I think it, it raises a question, a fundamental question about can we trust life? Can we really trust life? Um, so I, I pulled up another Joe Campbell quote that you're probably familiar with, but I'd love to share it. Um, he says, people, people say what we're really all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so that our life experiences on the purely physical plane will have resonance within our own innermost being and reality so that we actually feel, I love this term, we actually feel the rapture of being alive. Hmm. At that point, it's like, I got it, you know? Oh, it's like, it's like, oh, yeah. Right. And, and the idea of making sense of it or, or, or deri deriving meaning, I mean, maybe later when we talk about it, but there's no need for that. It's like, this is it. You got it. You're there. Um, 
uh, Hugh Prather, um, a, a mentor of mine for many, many years, um, one of his quotes was, there are no questions in God. It's a really interesting quote that you come to a place where you don't need to learn anything else. You come to that moment where um, you, you're past the need for knowledge. I mean, it's a kind of wisdom. It's it's just so. Or Stephen Levine, who I worked with years ago, he talked about, this is how he said it, the <clears throat> of experience, you know, <laughs> of wisdom. Um, yeah, so to allow that to happen, and I think in part the question of trusting the unconscious is also a question about trusting life itself, right? Yeah. And uh, back to Campbell, he's on my mind a lot these days. Um, the inner reaches of outer space, you know, that, that interesting parallel between when we go deep inside and we go way outside, it's like the same I love the example of um, the the evolution of our notions of aliens, how it parallels the evolution of our notion of the alien inside. So you go back to the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and we've got fiction and film about these horrible uh, aliens that are coming from outer space to, 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 to eat our children and steal our women, you know, these horrible beings. And then we have Freud's id, Right. What's inside is this horrible demonic thing that wants to destroy. Um, and then over time, um, what Rollo May and other humanists show up and they start talking about not das S, not the id, but the inner child. In short order, <clears throat> E.T. shows up. Right? It's a very different feel. So I, I think our capacity to trust, uh, whether it's inside or outside, is, is a single capacity. Or it's our willingness to have faith. And, and that, for me, that always brings up um, um, challenging questions. And you know, the, I guess these are classic theological questions about um, how do we explain suffering? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a common presumption in life today that and it's maybe sort of an old Christian thing that if you're good enough, you're not going to suffer. If you do it right, you're not going to suffer. If you engage in spiritual practice and you meditate at least twice a day, you're not going to suffer. And then, then there's Gordon Peterson who says, you know, if you're alive, you're in trouble. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so the, the notion that, that spiritual practice can somehow give us a charmed life, I think is really mistaken. I think it gives us spiritual practice. Yeah. It's nuanced, obviously, because the these traditions give us images of people who somehow are free from, you could say, at least gratuitous suffering. It's the second and third arrow. You get shot, and what do we do? You get shot by an arrow, you jam another arrow in there, and then you jam a knife, and then you jam a spear, and you you create something which is separate from the fact that there's pain in the world. And also because we're isolated, we there's this sense that... When you're out in the wild and you see, like when when the wolves are hunting bison, and people have seen a wolf get kicked 15 feet in the air, get up and start running again. Now, there's no question that wolf felt pain, but he's mm-hmm. not feeling sorry for himself. And yeah, somehow, yeah, and he releases that pain, somehow releases it into the larger ecology. He doesn't have to carry the burden himself because of that interwovenness. And yeah. he's with his pack, who are going to help him too. Right. That's the duck, the two ducks that squabble and they bark at each other. And then they swim away. And a few seconds later, they, they shake it off. 
P- Peter yes. Levine, um, you know his work. Uh, yes. Yeah, I went to school with Peter, so he he writes a lot about that—the ability to be able to shake it off. He has some beautiful personal stories about it too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and and obviously, I mean, when you're talking about pain and suffering, I, so images of Buddha and and Jesus come to mind. Yeah. Um, there, there, there's. If you're alive, you're in trouble. You know. Um, I, I think I think it's helpful speaking as a psychologist to real to recognize that, and not to think that all of that started when you were born. You know, that, uh, not to take that personally, right? Yeah, yeah. I kind of grew up with the sense of my mother that somehow the world was really a different place before I was born. Uh, and I think I think she was slightly missed. I guess her world was different. <laughs> well, it was different in some ways. And there's a way, I mean, I think what I'm trying to touch on is that when we deeply trust ourselves and the world, somehow the wisdom traditions are saying that the phrase, if you're alive, you're in trouble, is not quite right. It's not that it's wrong in some, but, but that it's, that they somehow... The profound trust in ourselves is that whatever arises, it turns out that it's workable. Now, my ego, of course, experiences that as, oh, my God, it's a problem. But these teachers seem to presence the possibility of a state of no problem. Sure, stuff's going to happen. But mm-hmm. it, you, you get to a place where you don't necessarily see it as trouble. I mean, you know, these are partly rhetorical things, and they're, they're not easy to, uh, to, well, for us I to think, get our heart uh, around. I think there's more of us when when we when consciousness expands. Exactly. The part of me that lives in the world still lives in the world. I'm going to stub my toe and get a toothache and whatever. Uh, but yeah, um, you know, you, you reminded me of um, I, when I, I worked with this rock band. I, I won't mention, but when I traveled with them, the, um, the the road manager was an interesting guy. And he was a Brit, but he um, his favorite phrase was "no problemo." You know, any anybody, anytime you ask them something, there's an interesting notion. It's yeah. not a problem. Yeah. There's a there's an interesting line in the Talmud that says a problem without a solution is not a problem. It's a complaint. Right. <laughs> if it's a problem, it's got a, it's got a solution. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite young ideas is that um, most I have to paraphrase, but most of life ma- life's major problems, he said, most of life's major problems can never be solved. Yeah. They can only be outgrown, and the, this outgrowth requires the emergence of a higher consciousness. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think there, there, he's really agreeing with the wisdom traditions. That's what they would say. If it's something that's really a problem, you change, and suddenly it's not anymore, and right. you wonder why you thought it was. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, and that's part of what allows us to trust ourselves. I mean, the, what the wisdom traditions are doing is they're trying to offer us teachings and practices that say, once you do this, you will verify for yourself that you're far more trustworthy than you thought and more capable of facing what you thought was unfaceable. Mm-hmm. And that, too, can scare us a little bit because the ego says, no, I can't face that. If you're telling me I can face that, then what? I mean, what am I supposed to think about the world? And that's part of what happens with these expanding states of consciousness. Are you familiar with that uh, terrifying dream that William James had? The one that he... I, I like James. Remind me. Yeah, well, James wrote about this dream. I did a, an episode about it, and I can send it to you. But he had this dream that shook him to the core of his being. Absolutely the most frightening dream. And 
what I think is interesting about it is that this is a guy who really wanted to venture into the unknown and into the Mm -hmm. mysterious. And here he had a dream. And what happened, the way he describes it, is that basically he was really sure that he was dreaming, but that the dream could not have been from his life. It's not just, oh, I was dreaming of being another person. He was absolutely clear And he describes, I read this passage, you know, you can listen to it, I'll send it to you, and I can put it in the show notes for anybody else who's curious. But it's such a beautiful example of how we do need to face our fear of the unknown, because our fear is generally going to keep those things out. And when they come in, they either they could terrify and even shatter us, or we would have done some preparatory work and we say, okay, all right, I was, I was sort of prepared that, that things might be crazy. I mean, it's why the spiritual traditions... You know, for instance, I I was listening to a psychologist talking about how he said, well, I used to do these uh, mindfulness trainings for other psychologists. It would be a weekend mindfulness workshop. And if Mm -hmm. we had 100 people, eh, two or three of them were probably going to have a psychotic episode. Well, that's why the wisdom traditions don't just have you do a mindfulness weekend. There's all this preparatory work because, yes, you could be exposed to something that this culture has not resourced you for. And it's almost to say that we could honor our fear and then find ways to train ourselves that we could we could still trust ourselves in the face of it. You know, you're reminding me that there's this interesting tension between two two ideas we're talking about. One is wisdom traditions. There are numerous uh, time-honored effective practices, you know, in yoga, meditation, or even in Christian and, and Kabbalah traditions, just, you know, ways to do it. And then there's the um, there's another quote. Life is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. Follow the path that is no path. Follow your bliss. So there's the idea that I don't need anything. It's all inside of me. Uh, and there's a bit of tension around that. There's a pull between those two. Oh, there yeah. is, because these traditions would, would obviously say, well, you are reality, but that doesn't change the fact that you're not necessarily ready to see that. And if you try to force it, then, you know, like, like it is a very Western notion. Campbell did that in some of his work. I feel that he had an un fair caricature of Eastern philosophy. Oh, they're just following gurus, and we're the individuals. And it's really kind of simple-minded. Those teachers are dedicated to people's uh, awakening, and their track record is a lot better than our tradition's track record as far as producing people who were considered, you know, really awakened people. Maybe not not everybody's a Buddha. Most of those traditions are actually very conservative, and they think that, well, that's extraordinarily rare. But to produce people of exceptional mind, and we see this in the science now, that's one of the nice things, is that when you stick these monks in the, like they did a, a pain study where they found a way to to give Maximal pain in, in the shortest time. You know, back quite some years ago, if you wanted to test people's tolerance to pain or their, their EEG response or whatever, ice water, right? But they developed a little patch. Maybe you heard about this. You put it on the skin. It's very thin, and high-pressure water moves through it. So that that patch, by controlling the water temperature, you can very quickly adjust the temperature, and you can make it extraordinarily hot, but then run cold water through it afterwards so that there's no damage. So it's like legal torture. You know, how do we get get maximal pain with no damage? And when they put the advanced meditators in there, they saw that their, their perceptual acuity was sharper than an untrained subject, but their level of suffering was nothing. 
And they asked one of them, Matthew Ricard, who was trained as a, as a uh, biochemist in, uh, at the Pasteur Institute. He got a PhD there and then became a monk and became a kind of exceptional meditator. And they said, well, what was your experience like? And he said, well, I guess I would say it like this. If I were staying in a greenhouse at noon in broad daylight, not a cloud in the sky, and it's beautiful in there, and somebody walks in with a birthday candle that's lit, a single candle. I can see it clearly. I know it's there, but I'm in this, as you would say, expanded. I'm in a much bigger space. And right. so it's not a bother. It's okay. I see it. No big deal. I'm released into this larger space. So we, we get bigger when we expand consciousness. I, and I, I do think, too, that we we become more we than I. Is a notion in, in some some cultures around the world, if you ask somebody, how are you, they can't respond uh, except to say we, they they can't really segregate um, their personal experience from from their families, their clans, their groups. I, mean, I think you know we we would call that codependence. My people, you know, we just put people in the hospital for that. Um, although I, I think I think somebody does have to develop enough of a sense of self before they can make that that conscious emergence. Otherwise, it is codependent. Yeah, and Jung was really emphasizing that too, that, you know, we, we think we can go off chasing these mystical experiences, but he said, look, I've had too many patients to, to I, I know better, you know, these people are not ready, <laughs> they don't have a stable enough ego before before you go transcending. Yeah. But to, to bring it back to sleep and dreams, I, I, I often think of um, sleeping as being, a, it can be a spiritual practice, depending on, on how we enter, how we relate to it, what we experience, what we're open to experiencing with it and and how we continue to to be cognizant of it to carry it um Sri Aurobindo had a a, a disciple named mother I don't, I don't know if you've read any of her stuff no, so she was um she's quite quite um well known for her discussions of sleep and she she never slept in the common sense of that word meaning she would lie down on her back and close her eyes for 3 or 4 hours a night she never lost consciousness to say that she never slept is a mistake. The truth is probably closer to the fact that she was always sleeping. There was a part of her that was just immersed in that deep sleep serenity, even when she was awake, you know. Um, so I, I think part of healing sleep, part of healing consciousness is considering that that sleep is not just a value psychologically, uh, phys- medically, physiologically, but it's of spiritual value. And that we are we are being immersed if we're willing to go there in, into the, this profound, expansive state of consciousness, and we're not there alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's part of what you invite people to do is to heal sleep is to have a sense of humility and surrender and maybe a sense of the sacred. You know that we're we're invoking something that was seen as an aspect of the sacred. Definitely. Definitely. And in, in Kabbalah, um, the story is that when you go to sleep, there are always six angels surrounding your bed. Mm. One at the bed, one at the foot, one on the right side, the left side, one above the bed, and one below the bed. Wonderful. That's a, a pretty uh, pretty comfortable image, but there's a, that, that sense of safety. But I, I want to go back for a moment to, to dreaming because it, it, it's, my, it, it's, it's my deep concern that, that we're dreamless, we're, we're not dreaming. Well, we've lost, you know, I think about the Rolling Stones notion, lose your dreams and you will lose your mind. Hmm. Psychologically, e- even if we, for a moment, step back from the, the, the expansive transcendent collective 
notion. Uh, dreaming is really important psychologically. It processes, it, it sifts through, it digests and assimilates waking life experiences. And, and uh, if, if we're not dreaming well, we are not assimilating, we're not being nourished by our waking life experiences. It, 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 metaphorically, it's a kind of um, psychological indigestion. We're not really processing and digesting those experiences. Um, it can result in what I sometimes call psychological diarrhea or psychological constipation. The diarrhea piece is where um, the information is result, unprocessed information is making us anxious all the time. Mm. You know, we've got the runs psychologically, but more commonly, um, we've known for decades that poor dreaming is associated with clinical depression, which in my, in my world, my understanding is a kind of emotional constipation. I am not digesting daily life. I'm not open to, and I'm not digesting daily life experiences. Um, ironically, we give most of those people antidepressants, the vast majority of which suppress dreaming. Mm-hmm. And our notion of why they work um, is not that they work. They actually they actually suppress symptoms associated with the rebound of dreaming. So when we don't dream, dreaming is pushing back. That pushback is uncomfortable. Yeah. And and the antidepressants tend to that. They they, they push back the pushback. And so people get um, people basically get um, neutered emotionally. They just stop. And in our world, that's okay as long as you can get up, brush your teeth, and, and go to the factory. You know, and, yeah. and, and do your thing. Uh, but it, it is a huge, huge problem. And um, and in our program, you know, Dr. Weil, who, who uh, heads our program, Paul Stamets, who's been involved with our work um, recently in, in discussions, they were saying they really believe um, psilocybin uh, in particular, psychedelics in general, psilocybin in particular, uh, can change the world. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some deep truth to that, that, that um, and obviously it scares a lot of people too, but I think it can help us expand consciousness. And so I, I think an intelligent use of those substances can be really helpful. Um, there's a lot of talk in the sleep medicine community now about uh, possibly researching the impact of psychedelics on sleep and dreams. It makes me smile because I've been addressing that anecdotally for about 40 years um, there's no doubt that it heightens dreaming. And if we're better, if we have a better relationship with the dream world, we definitely sleep better. But I think science is about to confirm that. Yeah. Well, those things, there's so many things that are going together there. For one, in, in a, an analogy to what you were talking about with uh, with mother, um, who, who, you know, was, I, I mean, sometimes I think he was her devotee. I mean, they were, they were jointly I, running I that thought. group. Yeah. They were jointly running that ashram. And, uh, but, but I, I'm thinking of Ram Das's story about when, when, uh, Babaji took a handful of LSD pills, right. any one of which would have sent somebody off on a trip for 12 hours because Ram Das made them. He knew what was in there. And he took a handful of them and nothing happened, because yeah. he's, he, it was just in parallel to what you're saying that, that the world itself is constantly presencing the mind. Everything is psychedelic. Everything has the capacity to do that. And you don't relate to it that way. And so similarly, in the Tibetan teachings, in the Lojong mind training teachings, they have a, a, a slogan for training the mind, which is to see everything as dreamlike. 
to mm-hmm. erase the duality between uh, daylight and, and sleep time. And what you find, too, of course, is that mindfulness during the day, if you, even anybody listening here, if you were to take a really rich half an hour walk in the woods where you looked at everything and said, this is just like a dream. This is my own mind manifesting all of this. I'm not seeing the tree. I'm seeing consciousness's production of the tree. And if you looked at it with that mindfulness, there is such a high probability that you'll have a lucid dream. Mindful practice during the day goes together with a kind of lucidity into sleep. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, all these things really go together. And it's interesting because, of course, it's just about welcoming a, and I really like, too, that you're talking about the failure to metabolize our experience and how important dream is for metabolizing our own life. So in, with respect to Campbell's quote, you can't have a full experience of life if you're not metabolizing it. Right. And right. so the dream is required for that, for us to follow our bliss. We have to surrender and the last thing that I'll touch on then, is, and to maybe invite you to talk about it a little bit, is how you say there's a couple things that we need. One is that relationship, let's say, between Lethe and Alethea, the covering, which is the river. The, the, the river Lethe is sometimes called oblivion, but really it, it, when you think of Alethea, Alethea means an uncovering. It's kind of similar to truth, being something being revealed, and it has the same root, the Lethe. It is Alethea. The Lethe is a covering. Something mm-hmm. needs to be covered over. We have to be able to let go of the ego, and then we have to see. We have to have the pneumosyne. We have to have the ability to, to be lucid there. You want to talk a little bit about the two things you say we need for sleep? That well, you... the, the letting go of the ego is tricky, I think. Uh, I, I think the ego has a tendency to take responsibility for for our spiritual lives, you know? <laughs> of course, it wants to, to control you know, it. <laughs> yeah, the, the, there's a notion of, of um, I mean, uh, just letting go of the ego. For, but for some people, there's a battle with the ego, Um there's a ten, there's a desire to destroy the ego. Yeah. It, it seems to me that the only part of us that would want to destroy the ego is the ego. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that that that's that's a mistake. I, I I do think that we go back to this notion of of trust and faith in ourselves, in life, in the world, in sleep, and in dreams. Uh, I I think we're carried, and and I think it's so difficult for us in our world to extend sufficient trust and faith. It's not an argument for passiveness. Uh, it, is an, it is an encouragement to dance with what shows up. But yeah, we have to be present with what shows up. Um, the, you know, being mindful on a walk in the woods, I, I think Jung would call that the waking dream. And waking dream work is critical. Uh, let, let me fold in one more piece that I think is is really relevant here. Um, it's the notion of crepuscular consciousness. So um, crepuscular is an English word that most people don't use. It's used more commonly in French and in uh, Spanish, crepuscule. Um, and, and of course, most of us believe there are two categories of living things. There's the diurnal, you know, those of us who are living things that are awake and active during the day, and the nocturnal uh, beings that are awake and active at night, but there are a lot of beings that are crepuscular. They are uh, awake and most active at twilight, at dusk and dawn. 
And, and Twilight is fascinating because it, it is the the bridge between uh, waking and sleeping and dreaming. Um, the, the French have a great term. I I, I I can't say much, but they they refer to a time of day when it's unclear if what you're looking at is a dog or a wolf. Is it friendly or is it potentially dangerous? And that's what dusk and dawn is about. It's it's a charged time. It's it's a time when when shadow and light play together. You know, um, it's a numinous time. You know, it's charged. And and in our world, um, crepuscular consciousness is pretty much gone. Um, we we substitute. We, in fact, we call it rush hour. Right, it's when you're getting up to get going, and you're getting you're hurrying up to get down, and and there's something we miss in that. Um, it's the same experience we would normally have around getting to sleep. You know, in our world, most people think of sleep going to sleep as being for many people it's it's five or ten seconds. Your head hits the pillow, you're out like a light. Um, not a good thing. Uh, but for most of us, it's a matter of a few minutes. We close our eyes, we turn the light out. Uh, but I think in nature, sleep actually starts when the sun goes down. There's this beautiful, gradual transformation of consciousness through dusk and, and also, again, through dawn. Uh, I think if we could live in those spaces, we would have a lot more faith in life. Yeah. And, of course, we do that when we go camping. And, by the way, of all the science, of all the research we have about the, the best medicine, if you will, for insomnia, the, the very best thing you can do for insomnia is go on a camping trip. Yeah, absolutely. The wild. And, and of course, that too shows because the research has been good. Maybe you've seen David Strayer's work about the three-day effect, which also applies to spiritual retreats. But, you know, he, he was he, finding that a, as a researcher, well, why isn't it that my good ideas, they don't come when I'm at the university with all the other brainiacs? I mean, what, what's the problem? I get my best ideas when I'm out in the wild, but it takes a few days. And mm -hmm. then people will said, oh, yeah, of course, man, it takes like, you know, three, four days to detox. And he thought, well, I'm going to test it. And he showed that if you go out into wilderness, and independently, of course, the control group were just relaxing for three days. That wasn't mm -hmm. it. Being in the wild, and these people tested 50% better on creativity and cognitive inventories. So mm -hmm. that too shows us, because the gold standard of epistemology in the Buddhist tradition is to go into the wild. That's really interesting. That's a different gold standard of epistemology from our you know, double-blind studies. But it also, um, it, it's, it's so interesting how we, we don't recognize that as part of the degraded ecology of our dreams. And what a beautiful thing that you're emphasizing. There you go. If you want the cure, nature's got it. Yeah. Well, what wake centrism is deeply rooted in, in cities. Um, I, I live about 10 minutes from downtown Tucson, but um, um, outside of my window is 800 acres of wilderness. Mm. I found a spot. Um, it's a city park that can't be touched. Yeah. And so there's just something so important about um, being with nature, you know, being in a dance with nature. Um you know, it's interesting in, in Native American traditions, if you look at names, you know, um, children, children are named after natural things, you know, animals or streams or mountains or rocks. Uh, a lot of kids today are named uh, Porsche or Mercedes. You know, the, the, the animation we see in the world, the living things are really cars and planes and trains and things. Um, yeah, we, we I, I guess it's a simple notion that, that I was first exposed to in the 60s. You know, getting back to nature. 
there is something healing about that. There's a sense of connectedness and oneness. The I becomes more we. Yeah, and and well, it's interesting because we're coming again and again to this notion of the the social dimension, and it's not just because often social means other humans, but that there is an interwovenness that constitutes our dreaming, and it's that do we have the practice of thinking we need to rely on the dream? Do we have the practice of talking to others about our dream? And do we have the practice of trying to think through the world and let it guide us because we're needing to metabolize these experiences in the dream world? As we come to a close, I wanted to read uh, a poem. You cited part of it in one of your pieces and just offer it to you to reflect anything else you'd like to to, to say. This is from Rumi, and uh, I'm going to read this one. I haven't memorized it. And uh, Coleman Barks' translation here, and, and I, this is from the Mathnawi, which w- probably would have been rhymed couplets, and that's not how it's arranged here. So, I mean, there are always problems with translation, and I know that um, some scholars of Arabic philosophy and religion have concerns about how we've done, but, you know, it's still beautiful in its own right, and I'm sure it captures a lot of the truth. So he gives it a title, The Milk of Millennia. And here's Rumi's poem. I am part of the load, not rightly balanced, I drop off in the grass like the old cave sleepers to browse wherever I fall. Mm-hmm. For hundreds of thousands of years, I have been dust grains floating and flying in the will of the air, often forgetting ever being in that state. But in sleep, I migrate back. I spring loose from the four-branched time and space cross, this waiting room. I walk out into a huge pasture. I nurse the milk of millennia. Mm -hmm. Everyone does this in different ways, knowing that conscious decisions and personal memory are much too small a place to live. Mm -hmm. Every human being streams at night into the loving nowhere, or during the day, in some absorbing work. And that's Rumi. And of course, he doesn't mean, you know, uh, working at a tech company. I don't think coding would count there. I think he means something that feels that meaningfulness that is beyond meaning, you know, like Mm -hmm. not the question of meaning, but I feel it, the meaningfulness of this work. It's the rapture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. Yeah, and, and, and I think many parts of this, one is this acknowledgement that, that sleep is not really unconsciousness. It's an experience so far beyond ordinary consciousness. Most of us fail to recognize it. I particularly love the beginning of that poem. Um, would you read the first few lines, please? Yeah, absolutely. I am part of the load, not rightly balanced. I drop off in the grass like the old cave sleepers to browse wherever I fall. Yeah. So that reminded me of of a long-forgotten memory when I was a little boy. Um, Like a lot of little boys, uh, my my friends and I, you know, were eight, nine, ten years old. We would play shoot-up games. We'd have toy guns and rifles and and uh, cowboys, Indians, or soldiers, or good guys, bad guys. But we'd be in the woods. Um, this was in, in New Jersey, in the Pine Barrens. And, you know, so, you know, we had different teams. Anyhow, it's, at some point, you get shot, you know. And uh, we, we all knew how to die. We saw it on television, you know. Go, 
we'd fall over. Um, and what I never told anybody, and what I'd forgotten until I read that poem, was um, I kind of liked being killed because I would fall to the ground. I mean, I was, you know, we were running around. I was sweaty and tired. I'd, I'd fall to the ground. I'd be dead for a while. And when nobody was looking, I would open my eyes and I'd browse. And it was just really interesting to be down there with, with the humus, you know, the leaves and the bugs or whatever was there. Uh, it, it, it was such a a lovely respite to get killed and, you know, to fall and to browse and to, to trust that fall in the world. So, yeah, that's what that poem reminded me of. Um, and you I have so. a line in your work, I don't want to interrupt your thought, but just to link it to other things, to other things you've thought about, that in order to sleep, we have to get grounded. Yeah. You wrote that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too. You know, typically, we, we, we get horizontal when we sleep. And we're all about the same height when we sleep. It, it evens us out. And and um, the uh, the English word for bed comes from the old uh, English phrase garden bed. The original notion of a bed was soil. And, um, you know, we, we touched on this notion of hyperarousal. I, I think being stuck in waking consciousness, it, it's this runaway positive feedback loop. We get more and more and more awake. Um, the, the way out of that is humility. Mm-hmm. Is to, to just go into humility, and and again, humility comes from humus. It kind of takes us back to earth. And, and let me close with just a, a quick story about um, my dog. I actually visited his grave site today. Um, I had a dog years ago. Died about twenty five years ago. His name was Isaac. He was uh, this this magical um, um, being. He was, he was able to fly. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, I played frisbee with him, and he'd be like twenty feet up in the air. His eyes would be bulging, just filled with passion. And um, I learned some interesting things from him. So we'd be in the backyard playing, throwing a Frisbee, and then my phone would ring. And when he watched me put my cell phone up to my ear, he'd give me that dog look like, what the hell are you doing? It like makes no sense, you know? Cock his head, his ears would go up and down. But what was fascinating was as soon as he knew I was engaged in a conversation, within a matter of seconds... He was this bag of bones that dropped to the ground and was asleep. And and it fascinated me that as passionate, as awake as he could be, he never ventured that far from sleep. And that's part of the beauty. I mean, I happen to love dogs. I think that they've got this innate quality um, of forgiveness and, and the capacity to let go, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think watching dogs is, is also a good treatment for insomnia. Yeah, I'm sure it is. It reminds me of B. Allen Wallace was talking about being taking a road trip with some advanced Tibetan yogis, and they said, you know, well, how long is this trip going to take? And he says it's going to be a few hours. And he said, I have never seen anybody fall asleep that fast. It was like somebody flipped a switch. They just said, okay, and they were just gone. It's right there. It's right there. And it's yeah. interesting, a, a last thought for everybody listening, I, I, I want to emphasize the kind of cultural rebellion that we are talking about. We've talked a little bit about challenging our ways of knowing, our wake centrism, wakeism is a, is a bigger problem than wokeism. And <laughs> it, it's really worth noting that this system benefits when you're up if you're on Amazon and Netflix, that's good. And they are losing money when we're not sleeping. Moreover, if we can't dream the solutions, if we can't dream our way out of this, then it's less likely to change. So I really appreciate your work because it, it is about trying to get us 
to sanity again, a little bit more wisdom, love, and beauty in our lives and recognizing that this is integral to that ecology. This is not an option. This is integral to what we are. Right. I, I think also it wants to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And it could be that that is part of why the psychedelic resurgence is happening, because people are wanting that as you test the waters of expanding consciousness, then you might be, maybe you get more confidence to, to, to look into yourself and find it there. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ruben. It's been a delight speaking with you, my friend. Great pleasure for me. Thank you, Nichols. And thanks to all of you for joining us. If you have questions, stories dreams to share, send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future dialogue or contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world, your dreams and the dreams of the world, are not two things. Take good care of them.